So um, I'm going to continue today with uh, the series that we've been doing, which is to uh, go through the different sections of the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the foundation, uh, foundations of mindfulness, or the discourse on the establishment of mindfulness. And um, there are these... Um, a whole series of exercises or descriptions of mindfulness practice given in this book. Some of these, in this section, this discourse, some of these then are very central to the kind of mindfulness that we do here. Some of them are tangential. Some of them, um, um, uh, all schools of Vipassana, almost all schools of Vipassana, derive their practice from this particular discourse. And uh, it's understood in Buddhism, in traditional Buddhism, that the means to liberation is through the practice of mindfulness, through establishing mindfulness. And mindfulness uh, could be taken as a very simple capacity of mind. It's the capacity of the, of the mind uh, to be present for things. Um, so kind of pre- some people translate it as kind of a presence of mind. Uh, and we all know, I think, when there's a presence of mind, that there's often, um, uh, you know, uh, life is much richer, or we take care of life much wiser, we connect to people in a more useful way. To have a presence of mind uh, as we go about doing the things we do. Um, a little bit more specifically, mindfulness is usually associated with um, not only being present for things as they are, uh, but also being able to recognize what they are as they're happening. So a very simple recognition of our experience as it's happening. It's often uh, pointed out that the simplicity of mindfulness, um, in the simplicity of mindfulness, there's no judging of experience. It's just seeing experience, recognizing it for what it is in its simplicity, a very simple kind of simplicity of being, a simplicity of awareness that very simply recognizes, oh, this is what's happening at this moment. I'm breathing, I have an itch, I have physical pain, I have um, uh, an emotion, I have a thought, there are sounds. To the simplicity of that, as opposed to the ways in which we can complicate it, which are innumerable. Uh, we have an experience and we judge it, we interpret it, we attack it, we grab onto it. We do a whole series of things with that experience. Some people find it very liberating to be introduced to mindfulness practice because they've never kind of been pointed out, never been pointed out to them um, how simple they can be with the experience, leave, leave experience alone. So it's kind of leaving things alone. Um, in their simplicity of how they actually are. Um, so it's that practice, that simple practice of mindfulness which is said to lead to liberation. And it leads to liberation on, along many different um, you know, levels. Um, but ultimately it's said to uh, lead to nirvana. At the beginning of the text it goes, this is the direct path for the purification of beings for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of nirvana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. So over and over again in the early Buddhist Buddhist tradition, and to this day in the Theravada tradition, it's this practice here that will lead, is said to lead to nirvana. needs to practice mindfulness. So this text, then, this, this particular text then becomes extremely important. And um, 
and as I've been saying, uh, there are many different schools of vipassana, and we're just one of them. And that um, there's many derivative, derivative ways in which people have developed the practice from this text. Some of the ways you would hardly recognize the, the practice as coming from this text at all. And in fact, maybe some of the people who listen to me speak or give the, uh, the like when I give, do the five week intro class, which I'm doing now in the middle of on Wednesday evenings. Uh, people might not recognize that uh, you know what I'm doing is based on this, or or they'll think that they understand it's based on this because um, I go through these four basically four different categories of where we apply mindfulness in the intro class: breath, body, emotions, and thoughts. Well, it's four. And this particular discourse has four categories for the establishing of mindfulness, sometimes called the four foundations of mindfulness. Oh, Gil must be talking about the same thing. Um, th- these four are different. And so what's happened in the West, especially, is that as Western teachers have developed the practice and begin offering the, the instructions, they've kind of divided up the practice or kind of organized it in ways that make a lot of sense for Western minds, Western categories, Western understanding. And so we tend to talk a lot about mindfulness of, the, of emotions, a lot of mindfulness of thoughts, in a way that you wouldn't actually see in this text. Though people think that the text says that, they assume that this text talks about it. Um, and it does, maybe indirectly. Um, it's, I think it's been one of the... So what, what, what we're going to be discussing today is the section on the third foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of the of mind. And here the word is citta, which I'll talk about more. And um, some people will, will, will place, some teachers, Western teachers will place the category of emotions under this category of mind. And um, and say that you know this this category of mindfulness of mind includes all the emotions. It's a little bit interesting that uh, the Western, the English word emotion, doesn't have any obvious word in Pali, in the Buddhist language of the Buddha, that is the same word. You can't really, it's very difficult to translate the English word emotion back into Pali, and, and, or back into Sanskrit. And, uh, and I've heard different things about if you translate it back into Hindi. Uh, some people who know Hindi say, well, yes, um, there is definitely a word that kind of fits. And other people who speak Hindi, well, you know, it's not really. And um, so the English word emotion has, you know, you can't translate that word into the Buddha's, Buddha's language. Now, is, does that mean the Buddha had no emotions? Or people at his time had no emotions? Or, that, or maybe it means that um, um, he had no need for any emotions, Right? Could that what it, what it means? No purpose for any emotions? Why bother, right? They're kind of messy. So, you know, is that why? Um, um, what I think is that uh, Buddha and Buddhists and Indians in India had, uh, you know, just a full range of emotions as we do. But the word emotions in English is a very, it's kind of a vague word. And if you read Western psychological research, anthropological research that tries to pinpoint or define what an emotion is, there's endless books. You know, they're debating what it is, and there's a, you know, every decade or two, there's different schools that say this is what emotions are, and then, you know, so you won't, don't really know what your emotions are until you read some of these books, right? 
And then you read them in college or something, and then 10 years later, they have a new theory of what emotions are. And then, wait a minute, what, am I, what have I been doing this last 10 years? You know, it's kind of, you know. So, so people in the West don't even know what emotions are, but you know what your emotions are, right? <laughs> yeah, you know? <laughs> so, um, so, but emotions are really important here in the West, in America especially, and it's an important category, and we relate to each other very much on, based on emotions. And um, uh, I think emotions are really the foundation of, of what people use to find out the, find the good life, to find a meaningful life, purposeful life, is often through uh, what they think is their feelings, their emotions. But still, the word emotions, I think, has a, a, a somewhat vague definition. It's not clear exactly what it is. What my, what my suggestion has been is that different cultures take the pie, if you take, take human, human um, experience, like emotions and thoughts and feelings and all these things, and you make them into a kind of, put them in a pie, human experience into a pie, pie shape, then um, you can divide up that pie in many different ways. And you still have the same pie. You can divide it in quarters and fifths and eighths and whatever, right? Or not even symmetrical, just all kinds of funny ways. And um, so, the, uh, so here in the West, we have a particular pie, a particular way in which we cut, chop up the pie. In India, they chopped it up a different way. And it's not less or more valid than our way, perhaps, but it's just a different way. And so it, it lends itself to some difficulty in translating, then, um, a religious tradition from one culture to another, because do the categories really fit, given that you know, they divide up the pie differently? Do you follow me? It's okay so far. So, um, so there is no obvious uh, category for emotions in traditional Buddhist language or, or discourse. Here in the West, emotions are very important. And what's happened uh, as Vipassana has come to the West, Western teachers have uh, needed to address emotions or have taken on emotions and try to talk about how to bring mindfulness to emotions, how to handle emotions and there's a, uh, many teachers give talks on, you know, working with difficult emotions. It's a popular topic. And um, um, and when we teach, you know, we often teach then uh, not just me, but we teach the sequence of breath, body, emotions, thoughts. It's a pretty common uh, sequence for teaching the mindfulness practice. So emotions is one of the things we address. And um, not a few of these Western uh, Buddhist teachers are also therapists. And so there's a lot of, um, uh, I think part, part, part of the, the wonderful thing that's happened, one of the kind of genius of Western Buddhism, has been taking Buddhist ideas of mindfulness and concentration and all kinds of stuff and applied them in the Western category of emotions, how to be with anger, how to be with, with uh, uh, desire, how to be with joy, how to be with the whole range of them, how to be with them when they're really difficult and very overwhelming. And probably many of you have read books by Vipassana teachers, they talk about mindfulness of emotions. It's often a very key thing they talk about. I've heard talks about them. And it's, I think it's been really beautiful um, the way that uh, Western teachers slowly over the years, often learning from each other as they teach and learning from, from all the practitioners, have kind of developed a whole way of understanding how to bring mindfulness to emotions. Those of you who listen to teachers like myself um, and I'm not one of the best ones to do this. I mean, there's teachers who teach, um, teach on emotions much better than I do. Um, but as we do this, um, most people, I don't think, realize 
what a novel thing is we're doing. Um, you, you would have a hard time finding a teacher in Thailand or Burma or Sri Lanka giving uh, these brilliant talks, you know, and working with difficult emotions. It just, you know, wouldn't occur to them. It just, I don't think, you know, I never heard it. Um, it just, that their minds don't work that way or something. They don't divide up the human experience that way. When Ajahn Sumedho, who was one of the great, uh, he's a Californian who was ordained in Thailand, was a, has been a monk now for 35 years in the Thai tradition, now is the abbot of a monastery in England. And he, when he was asked, what's the difference between teaching uh, in the West and teaching in Thailand? He speaks fluent Thai, and so he often gives Dharma talks in Thailand. And he said, oh, the difference is that um, in the West you have to talk about psychology. And uh, you would never do that in Thailand. You know, it's just not what you do. Uh, you, you give a talk on something else, but you wouldn't talk about psychology, psychology of emotions and all that. And um, because that doesn't, that somehow doesn't, the minds don't work that way. A, 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 a monastic friend of mine read, I think he, re, he, he read, out, he translated it out loud as he was reading some book on Western, some very classic book on Western psychology. Something, or psychotherapy or something. Maybe, maybe a book by Carl Jung or, or Maslow or, I don't know, some, some great person. And uh, so he was reading these sections, this, his, his uh, monk, who was a Thai monk. And the Thai monk just started scratching his head and said, what's going on? What's going on here? <laughs> this is bizarre. You know, he never heard anything like this before in his life. So um, I'm saying all this on and on. Partly um, uh, to challenge you a little bit that maybe some of the categories that we hold as being very tightly as being very important for us are a little bit arbitrary or they're culturally conditioned, they're cultural categories that are very important for us or perhaps people are influenced by Western culture or American culture, but they're not universal. And if they're not universal, then how do we relate to them? Some people believe there are every emotion they have. Some people uh, will write manifestos about the purpose and meaning of emotions and they're ready to to say it mildly they're ready to argue (laughs) over you know their views about how you're supposed to relate to emotions it's a very important category so what are emotions so now I'll read this section on the mind um, and then I'll explain it. So if you don't understand, then it's okay. And how, bhikkhus, bhikkhu means a monk, how monks, does a monk abide contemplating mind as mind? Here, a monk understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust. The mind unaffected by lust as mind unaffected by lust. He or she understands mind affected by hate as mind unaffected by hate. And mind unaffected by hate as a mind unaffected by hate. He or she understands mind affected by delusion as mind affected by illusion. And mind unaffected by delusion as mind unaffected by delusion. He or she understands Contracted mind as contracted mind. 
as distracted mind as distracted mind. Here she understands exalted mind as exalted mind and unexalted mind as unexalted mind. Here she understands surpassed mind as surpassed mind and unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed mind. Here she understands concentrated mind as concentrated mind and unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated mind. He understands liberated mind as liberated mind and unliberated mind as unliberated mind. So, I know this is really dry. Um, so, the, uh, it, so it's, it's very repetitive, and part of the value of this repetition is to drive into us the simplicity of what's being asked here. In being mindful of these categories, the monk or the practitioner is asked to be mindful of them in their simplicity, to be aware of a mind affected by lust as a mind affected by lust. Just know that. No, oh, this is the, there's a lustful mind right now. This is what's happening. A hateful mind, recognize it as a hateful mind. As a concentrated mind, you recognize it as a concentrated mind. An unconcentrated mind, you recognize it as an unconcentrated mind. So there's this, this recognition. It doesn't say, notice that you have a lustful mind and then um, criticize yourself for having it. It doesn't say, have a concentrated mind and then pat yourself on your back and show off to everyone. It doesn't say, to, doesn't say to apply any meaning to the existence of these things. It doesn't say to interpret them in any way. And it doesn't say to attribute them in any kind of way to yourself. Don't appropriate them as a self. Don't say, because you, I don't know if you noticed, but the language is a little bit unusual here. Um, there's no pronouns, possessive pronouns, uh, in, in a sense. Um, here, a person understands Mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust. Whose mind? Right? It doesn't. Say, it doesn't say um, a bhikkhu understands his or her mind as affected by lust, or it doesn't say your mind. It just says aware when this is here. And part of this is that uh, is that the absence of pronouns is partly to suggest how simple the recognition of these things can be. There's, you, you, to actually to say, oh, I am angry. I have a mind of hate. I have a mind of desire. I have a mind that's exalted. Is a seemingly very innocent thing to say. But when the mind is very still, you'll see it's not so innocent. It's actually adding a layer of complication on top of the experience. It's attributing that experience to self. If you're having that experience, it isn't happening to someone else. But there's not kind of a denying of you having the experience. But the movement of the mind says, oh, this is happening to me. Or the movement of the mind where we use that experience to define who we are is not done in this exercise. If you keep it that simple, Um, so then what is meant what is the word mind the word mind is citta a very important word in Buddhism occasionally it's translated as heart rather than mind or heart mind 
Um, it, traditionally in Thailand and, and in Burma and Southeast Asia, if you ask the person, a monk, uh, where your chitta is, um, he or she would point here to their chest, to where the heart is. Um, it's a chitta turns out to be as difficult to define as the English word emotion. There is very difficult to find a technical, precise word for the, for the, for the way that the word chitta is used in the early texts. And perhaps the word mind also in English is kind of a vague word. I mean, what, what exactly is mind? Um, but uh, chitta here sometimes is taken to be something akin to consciousness or a, a conscious state. But think about consciousness or conscious state in Buddhism. It's always understood to be a conscious state of something. Consciousness of something. Consciousness, it's very, very difficult, I think, for us to understand here in the West, where we often have the idea of consciousness as being something that persists through time. It's often the thing that people are often most attached to, their mind or their consciousness, their inner life. Their body, they don't have to be so attached to. Their perceptions, they don't have to be so attached to. Um, but often, often, sometimes emotions they're not so attached to. But their mind, that's really who I am, the consciousness. But... Um, uh, consciousness in the early Buddhist tradition it arises in each moment of, a, of, of being aware of something. So if I go like this, you have hearing consciousness arise to hear the thumping of the book. If you all look at me right now, you have seeing consciousness arises in the moment of seeing. If there's a smell in the room, there's smell consciousness that arise. If you stroke your hand, then there's uh, tactile consciousness that arises. And there isn't, there isn't like this blank slate of consciousness kind of in the background. It's a sponge that picks up all these things. Rather, consciousness is born anew every time there's a new sense experience. So any moment, a moment of consciousness is a consciousness of something. So chitta is kind of often sometimes taught as consciousness, a conscious state. Consciousness by itself is very simple, just kind of simple registering, simple awareness of something. However, consciousness, the mind, is conditioned or influenced or colored by various mental factors that co-join with it or that influence or kind of arise together with it kind of alongside it, kind of colleagues or kind of like um, partners or kind of, I don't know what to say. So um, there's an awareness of, say, there's a, you know, you look at a book, there's an awareness of the book. But that awareness of the book, that state of awareness, that state is colored by some of the mental factors that arise at the same time. If you see how beautiful this book is, there might be greed arises. And the arising of greed is a mental factor that then colors or influences or shapes that consciousness. If you see it's a beautiful book and say, oh, I'd like to give that to someone, go to a store and buy one and make it as a gift, that's a movement of generosity. And generosity then colors that state of that consciousness. 
So our, the state of our mind, the state of our conscience is constantly colored by these different mental factors that arise that influence it. So I hope you're following. I know it's a little bit hard here, but this is, this is um, uh, one of the, this is kind of like the heart of traditional Buddhist psychology, the way it's taught. It's really, really central to the whole enterprise. There's, there's volumes and volumes of traditional Buddhist psychology that are an elaboration of this very central thing I'm trying to say now. So that was supposed to try to get you to wake up and pay a little more careful attention. So there's many different mental factors that come into play. There are said to be seven mental factors that appear with every moment of consciousness. Things like perception, feeling tone, um, uh, volition, uh, energy, something called life force. There's seven different things that arise together. The most important mental factor that arises together with consciousness or a conscious state, state of being conscious, is volition or intention. And every moment of consciousness for an ordinary person has intentionality in that moment of consciousness. There's motivation, there's volition, there's wanting something. And it's the volition or the intention which has the biggest impact on shaping your consciousness, your state of your mind. And so what uh, the Buddhist tradition says is that it's very important you start paying attention to those intentions, those motivations in the mind that are the ones that are going to shape your mind now and down into the future. And the traditional Buddhist view is not only into this lifetime, but into future, future lifetimes. And so Buddhism puts emphasis then on taking responsibility for the, how we're shaping our mind. The mind is not taking this being a static thing. It's not a thing in Buddhism. The mind is a process. And the mind is a process of consciousness and all these mental factors coming into play. And depending on, depending on which mental factors come into play, you shape your consciousness in very different ways. So part of mindfulness practice, or part of Buddhist practice, is to begin some, somehow taking responsibility for these mental factors. And it turns out the key one is our intentions, our desires, our, what motivates us. And there are two kinds of intentionality, two kinds of motives, categories. There are those which are skillful and those which are unskillful. Skillful ones are those that shape the mind, help shape the mind to move it towards becoming happier and freer. Unskillful ones are those that shape the mind to become less happy, unhappy, and more in, if the, if the, if the opposite, maybe the opposite of freedom then would be in bondage more uh, under the control, under the sway of emotions, uh, under, of attachments, of, of uh, mind states, of impulses, of karma. So there are these two different kinds of intentions. The unskillful intentions are then uh, categorized into three primary ones. And these are called the the three roots, 
the roots of unskillful behavior, unskillful mind states. And these probably, if you've been around Buddhism for a while, have heard of these three before. They're used quite regularly, and they're just greed, hate, and delusion. And these are the three categories which this section on the mind opens up with. Greed, hate, and delusion. Though here he calls it lust. Um, and um, there's various ways this word can be translated. And, uh, and, uh, but lust or greed, it's, they all include each other. It's like whichever way, you know, the intense craving or clinging. Um, so here it goes through the first three. Is, is Here he translates lust, hate, and delusion. Greed, hate, and delusion. So it's very important to recognize these when they arise. Because then the opportunity is there for us to become responsible for them and not to act on them. To see them, they rise. see a mind that's captured by greed or craving, see a mind that's captured by hate, or see a mind that's in this sway of delusion, and to see it and to learn not to be caught by it, to be free of it, not to be under its sway. And then it, uh, the text gives the opposite. It says... When the mind is unaffected by lust, one should, one should know the mind is unaffected by lust. So the, when the mind is absent of greed, hate, and delusion, one should know that the mind is absent of greed, hate, and delusion. One should know the difference between a mind that's caught and a mind that's not caught. And that turns out to be very helpful. The more freer your mind can become, the easier it is to notice when the mind is caught. And the easier it is to know when the mind is caught, the easier it is not to act on a caught mind, or not be, not be in its way. Part of the reason to do something like meditation is to get a taste, of, a, of, of, of at least in degrees, of a liberated mind, a mind that's not caught. In the early Buddhist tradition, uh, the absence of greed, hate, and lust is not just simply the absence, but also implies the presence of the opposite. So the opposite of, um, of greed is said to be generosity. The opposite of hate is said to be love. And the opposite of delusion is, is meant to be wisdom. And these are the three roots of wholesome or skillful intentionality. Generosity in particular, love in particular, and wisdom in particular are some of the strongest things that shape the mind. So the mind becomes a healthy or wholesome, or skillful place that is more conducive to liberation. The mind is like, you know, um, you know, if you're an artist, you know, you're the artist, and your mind in Buddhism is kind of like your medium that you work with as your artist, the clay you work with, or the canvas that you work with. And then, how do you work and shape that mind? If you don't take responsibility for it, Guess who is going to? We have a society that pays people a lot of money to figure out ways to shape your mind. And they do a really good job at it. <laughs> Otherwise, they wouldn't be paid so much. <laughs> and of course, I'm not talking about any of you, of course. Because <laughs> no one wants to admit that they've been shaped by, you know, their mind's been shaped. But we get shaped by our culture. And we get shaped by advertisers, we get shaped by politicians, we get shaped in various ways. And 
in a, in a sense, Buddhism is, can, can be seen as being very subversive culturally or, because it's it helping people not to be caught by some of the popular currents of, uh, in the ways that people want to be influenced. You know. um, so here the instructions are, when you have a mind that's filled with greed, know it, it's filled with greed. And that's simple. No need to judge it or criticize it. Just recognize that it's there. To really recognize. In the recognition itself, when it's clear enough, there is freedom right there. So what you might do, if you're sitting and meditating and watching your breath, at some point you'll notice that you're no longer watching your breath. Your mind is off with some kind of thought. Rather than just coming back right away to the breath, Notice, what is the state of consciousness? What's the state of the mind that's involved with that thought? Is there greed or hate? Is there desire or hate or delusion? Is there generosity or love or wisdom in that connection with that thought? What's the state? What's, the, what's, what's shaping the mind? right now in that kind of distraction. <coughs> Early Buddhism, or this classic Buddhism, does not make a sharp distinction between thoughts and emotions in the way that some people in the West, popularly at least, would like to make that distinction. I think, I believe that a lot of the kind of academic research on emotions will not see a sharp divide between thoughts and emotions for the most part. Um, um, but so when your mind gets caught up in this kind of thought, you can investigate it. Is this a mind of lust or desire? Is this a mind of hate? Or is it not? Is that easy to do? <laughs> um, does it seem like a lot of work? Does it seem oppressive to do that kind of analysis or that kind of study or that kind of mindfulness? Then the text goes on to give other categories. One understands a contracted mind as a contracted mind. Contracted mind is one that's just contracted. It's kind of, you know, pulled in on itself, tight, constricted. Um, That happens occasionally to some people. (laughs) And And then it goes on to say distracted mind as a distracted mind. So the occasional times when people are distracted, the instruction is notice you're distracted. No, this is a distracted mind. Know what it's like. Study a distracted mind. You're not exactly distracted when, you, when you're really clearly aware you're distracted, but kind of study that mind. What is that distracted mind like? What's the state of your state of consciousness, your state of your emotional life, your, you know, your state of your thoughts when you're in distracted mode? A lot of people who do meditation will often let go of their thoughts and come back to the breath over and over and over again, even at a time when they find themselves very distracted. And it might be more useful to actually let go of the breath and spend some time really getting to know what the distracted field is like, distracted kind of state that one's in. What's that state like? What kind of state are you in when you're in a distracted state, state of mind? Then, uh, one understands an exalted mind as exalted mind. Now we're getting into the good stuff, right? 
The exalted mind here is usually understood to be a mind that's um, really well concentrated. Um, very, very kind of pristine level of concentration. But also, when the mind is not exalted, one knows this is an unexalted mind. One understands one has a surpassed mind. When, when there's a surpassed mind, one understands it's, it's a surpassed mind. An unsurpassed mind is an unsurpassed mind. A concentrated mind is a concentrated mind. An unconcentrated mind is an unconcentrated mind. And one understands a liberated mind as liberated and unliberated mind as unliberated. The commentaries will say this that does not mean ultimate liberation, but rather one is liberated from the five hindrances. One is liberated from um, uh, having the mind pulled around by uh, uh, greed, hate, sloth, lethargy, anxiety, restlessness, and doubt. So if those, no, those are not influencing the mind anymore, then in, with lowercase l, that's a liberated mind in Buddhism. So this is a section that then sometimes is popularly thought to talk about emotions, mindfulness of emotions, or people say, oh, this is just shorthand. This is not supposed to be a comprehensive list, but that um, if we kind of expanded the list, it just includes a whole range of all our emotions. Just be aware when you have an emotion, be aware you're having it. Uh, I think that's accurate enough, but what's that, what that leaves out is these first three uh, categories listed here, which are the unwholesome or the unskillful motivations, states of mind, that help shape the mind in the long term. And that one of the things we're trying to do in Buddhism is to, is to notice when the mind is under the grip of skillful states of mind, skillful thoughts, and when it's under the grip of unskillful ones. And if we can kind of move, let go of unskillful states of mind and prefer the skillful ones, that helps Buddhist spiritual development dramatically, greatly. So to notice when um, you know you find yourself in a fantasy, a sexual fantasy, and after two days of it, uh, you might occur to you that uh, this is not so useful. <laughs> and this is not so skillful. And so you, you put it down. Um, or you're filled with hate. And you hate you know, someone who maybe it's popular to hate these days. I don't know who you hate. But... Um, but uh, maybe after two minutes, you realize, oh, this is not so useful for me to spend my days, my precious life, involved in this kind of state of, state of mind. So then the question is, how, do one, how does one wisely let go or not engage in unskillful states and cultivate and develop skillful ones? And there are certainly unhealthy ways of relating to unskillful states of mind, repression, denial, so, um, you know, to mention just a few of them. Um, but how, you know, to do it in a skillful way? And I think part of the, part of the key for this is uh, right here in this very dry technical description. And that is, it says, uh, when the mind is in the grips of an unskillful state of mind, simply recognize it as this is what's happening. So there has to be the very clear recognition, this is what's happening without judgment, without interpretation, without uh, assigning a meaning, the, kind of, the very raw simplicity of it. If you could do that as a foundation of, of the practice, then the choices you make later about letting go or not acting on things will probably happen in a much wiser way once you've had that very clear recognition. To pay attention to the mind state, 
in this way, the state of your mind, the quality of your mind. This is, you know, another way of talking about citta, mindfulness of citta, is you're paying attention to the quality of your mind and being interested in the quality of your mind. I think for a lot of people, they don't have any interest in the quality of their mind. They're interested in, you know, their work or their relationships or their bank account or, um, you know, their cars or politics or, you know, all kinds of things in a sense. It's outside of themselves. Not that those things shouldn't be paid attention to, but we tend to lose track of the quality of our own mind. And one of the things to be the safeguard of, one of the things to protect and to work with is how to work with cultivating a really good quality of mind, a really good quality of heart. What does it take to develop that and to cultivate it? It's certainly one of those places to develop mindfulness. Develop mindfulness of the quality of our mind. If one does this, well, then one will eventually abide independent, not clinging to anything in the world. To become independent or free, liberated, not attached to anything is uh, one of the primary goals of Buddhist spirituality. At least in this text here. Um, so I, I realize this might have been very kind of uh, technical or dry. I hope you could follow. I apologize for for that. But at least once I wanted to kind of go through this section and try to explain it the best I could. Uh, the next um, times we pick up this text, we have five more sections to go through. And the next section is called uh, Mindfulness of, of, of Dhammas or Dharmas. And... Um, Dharmas is another, another, another one of these words that's very hard to translate into English. But as, if you go read those five sections in, in the, here, what you'll find is they're going to now they're going to talk about the pro, understanding the processes, the inner processes that either move one towards liberation or towards bondage. And so learning to recognize is the mental processes they go on. So in the earlier section of the, of the text, they're not, not focusing on processes so much as they're focusing on individual things that arise, the quality of the mind this moment, but not the process of how things change, develop over time, and how things actually function in keeping us in bondage or how things actually function in liberating us. So the next five sections then become more important. And um, I don't know what we were doing it next week, but I think we have to, we'll take a week break on this text. Is that right, Jim? Yeah. Next week. Yeah, next week. Next week, I'm going to, every year, most years, I give a talk on Monday night, a, a kind of a Halloween talk. And, uh, and so sometimes the Dharma friends ask me to do it before their hungry ghost party so I can get everybody in the proper mood. <laughs> and, um, and so instead of talking about the hindrances and attachment and clinging and fear and all these things that we come up next to here, I'll talk about, you know, ghosts and goblins and monsters and fear and attachment and <laughs> oh, and then we'll pick up again. 
So thank you all very much.